Okay, good morning. Let's get going. So, uh, as always, I'll start with the review. And today, we embark on a, uh, another major milestone in our analysis of uh, lump circuits, and it's called the sinusoidal steady state. And again, I believe this will be the second and the last lecture for which I will be using view graphs. And the idea here is that, uh, just like in the last lecture, uh, there is a bunch of uh, mathematical grunts that needs to be gone through. And uh, I'm going to show you a sequence in a little chart today that uh, talks about the effort level in doing some problems based on time domain differential equations as in the last lecture, uh, something slightly different today, and something much better on Thursday. And so in some sense, Thursday's lecture and today's lecture um, involve talking about the foundations of the behavior of certain types of circuits. And uh, it's good, good for you to have this foundation as, as background. But in, when you actually go to solve circuits, you don't quite use these methods. You use much easier techniques, which I will talk about uh, next Thursday. So let's start with a quick review, and then we'll go into sinusoidal steady state. So. Uh, the last lecture, we talked about uh, this circuit, and so did we, uh, and we did the same uh, two lectures ago on Tuesday. So we had one inverter driving another inverter, and we said that the wire uh, over, over ground has some inductance. CGS is the capacitor of the gate, and R is the uh, resistance at the drain of the uh, first inverter. And if you look at the circuit, that circuit formed a little formed an RLC pattern. And what we did was we said, let's drive this with a uh, 1 to 0 transition at the input. And the 1 to 0 transition at the input would cause this transistor to switch off. And uh, this node would then go from a very low value to a high value. So it is as if a 5-volt uh, step was applied at this input. We also saw that uh, using time domain differential equations, that by applying a step input here, the output looked like this. The output would uh, show some oscillatory behavior when we have a capacitor and the inductor. Um, I also gave you some insight as to why it oscillates like this. And you've, you also heard in recitation that the reason for this oscillation was because of these two storage elements. Each of these storage elements tries to hold on to its state variable. So for example, the capacitor tries to maintain its voltage, while the inductor tries to maintain its current. And much like a pendulum, which oscillates back and forth, swaps energy between its uh, potential energy versus ki kinetic energy down here, and swings back and forth. In the same way, in an LC circuit like this, energy swaps back and forth between a potential energy and a kinetic energy uh, equivalent, which is uh, swaps back and forth between uh, energy stored in the inductor and energy stored in the capacitor, and sloshes back and forth. And because of this resistor, the energy eventually dissipates, and you end up getting uh, a final value which corresponds to the 5 volts appearing here. And why is that? That's because, remember, the capacitor is a long-term long open for DC. So it's a DC voltage. So after a long time, this capacitor looks like an open circuit. And the inductor looks like a complete short circuit, an ideal inductor, as a complete short circuit for DC. And so therefore, in the long term, it is as if this guy is a short, this guy is a open, so 5 volts simply appears here. And this is the transient behavior when we just switch it. Uh, uh, we just switch the first transistor off. Okay. And in the last lecture, I left off with uh, intuitive analysis, and uh, let me quickly cover that and uh, redo the intuitive analysis for you. And I left it the last time by having you think about whether the transient response would uh, begin by going down or begin by going up. Okay. And I'll cover that today. So this was the circuit that we had, uh, that we analyzed, uh, a VI input with a step and uh, an RLC out here. And we were plotting the capacitor 
voltage. And intuitively, we can plot this in the following way. I also marked for you the section number in the course notes, which has a discussion of uh, this intuitive analysis. So uh, let's do the easy stuff first. Notice that the capacitor wants to hold its voltage. And so uh, given that we don't have any infinite impulse here, uh, I'm going to start out with the capacitor voltage being where it is. And the initial conditions are given to you. You are given that the capacitor voltage starts out being positive at V0, and the current starts out being negative at time 0. Okay, so I'm telling you that there is a voltage V across the capacitor at time uh, T equal to 0, and there's a current that is flowing, since I is negative, there's a current initially that's flowing in the, op flowing in the opposite direction to this arrow here. Okay, the I0 is negative. So in light of that, I can start plotting my curve here by intuition. So by, I start by saying, okay, at time t equal to zero, I'm told that the initial voltage of the capacitor is at zero. Okay, this is about as simple as it gets, completely intuitive. I also know that after a long time, can someone tell me after a long time what the voltage will be at the end of uh, at the capacitor? This should be, you should be able to get this by observation. VI. And why is it VI? It's VI because this is a DC value VI. And after a long time, uh, this guy behaves like an open circuit to DC. This guy behaves like a short circuit to DC. Okay, so since it's an open circuit, VI will appear here after a long time. Okay, and so therefore, after a long time, the capacitor voltage is going to be at VI. Okay, and I just show you that. There you go. You already have the two endpoints of your curve completely by observation, intuition. Okay, uh, no DEs, no nothing. Okay, just by staring at it and understanding the fundamentals of how simple primitive circuit elements work. Okay, absolutely simple stuff. Okay, so you, you've nailed the two ends now, and you can't go wrong with the stuff in the middle. Okay, so let's see. So uh, as a next step, what I do is I need to understand you know, what the dynamics of the circuit looks like here. So what I do is I develop the characteristic equation. And uh, initially, you'll write the differential equation and substitute e to the st and get this characteristic equation. All right? But you can also remember it as a pattern. For a series RLC circuit, you always get an equation of this form, always. Okay, if this is R, L, and C, and whether uh, C is, uh, you know, whether... Uh, you're looking at L up here or C up here and L up here. As long as you're looking at the capacitor voltage, the, uh, uh, the capacitor voltage is going to behave the same. Okay, and for this circuit, the characteristic equation remains the same as well for a series RLC. It's exactly this. And uh, I write the standard canonic form as S squared plus 2 alpha S plus omega naught squared. And omega naught is simply 1 by square root of LC. And alpha is simply R divided by L and uh, uh, I have two in the uh, denominator as well. Uh, and then I get omega d, which is my damped frequency, uh, given by omega naught squared minus alpha squared. And q, uh, q is simply, uh, it's called the quality factor, and we'll learn about uh, q in a lot more detail about a couple of lectures from today. Uh, that is given by omega naught divided by two alpha. And q, um, so these parameters, uh, alpha, omega naught, q, and omega d, pretty much characterize everything else that I need to know about the circuit, okay? So first of all, omega d is the frequency, okay? Frequency of oscillation, okay? And so since omega d is the frequency of oscillation, then I know that the time period of oscillation is 2 pi by omega d. Omega is in radians. Notice that for many, for typical values of, of circuits like this, when r is, when r is pretty small, uh, alpha squared is going to be very small. And in many, it's, it's a common case for underdamped circuit that omega d will more or less be equal to omega naught. Okay, in many, commonly that, that is going to be the case. So uh, this frequency is governed by LC. And if uh, R is large, it's governed by this value, omega d here. So I have the frequency of oscillation. I also know that Q is related to the frequency of oscillation divided by alpha. It's a ratio of 
the frequency divided by how badly I'm being damped. So it's a fight between the frequency of oscillation and how heavily I damp. And the ratio of that is an indication of how many cycles I ring. Okay, so Q tells me that the ringing stops approximately after Q cycles. Okay, so these four values, omega dQ, alpha, and omega naught, are telling me more and more now. Okay, so I've got these two factors. Okay, so I know now, based on omega d and Q, that it's going to look something like this. Some, you know, swinging, uh, ringing here, and then I, I stop at this point. The last thing that's left to do here for me for now is to figure out whether I start out going down or I start out going up. Okay, so I start out going down or I start out going up. I don't know that yet. Okay, and I left at, I start at this point in the last lecture and I, and I let you think about how you can stay at the circuit. Okay, and intuitively figure out whether this goes down or that goes up. Okay, so here's the insight. So let's stare at this for a minute, purely through intuition. The capacitor has a voltage V across it, all right? And that's because I'm telling you that it has an initial voltage V. Now, I want to find out at time t equals zero plus, in which direction does the capacitor voltage go, increase or decrease? Okay, so what do I do? Let me take a look at the inductor current. I'm told that the inductor current is negative which means I'm told that the inductor current is going in this direction initially. Okay, the inductor current is pushing in this direction. Now remember, just as the capacitor is, is one stubborn nut trying to hold its voltage, the inductor is as stubborn. It's trying to hold its current. Okay, so it's trying to hold its, maintain its current, and its current, initial current I0 is in this direction. So the capacitor has a voltage, Okay, here, that's V0, and the inductor is yanking the current in that direction. Okay, so what happens to the what should happen to the capacitor voltage initially? If I'm, if I'm at V0, and someone is yanking current out, at least initially in that direction, what should the initial dynamics of the, of the capacitor voltage look like? Pardon? It should drop. Okay, which means that if the initial current is being you know, pulled in that direction, the capacitor voltage must droop to begin with, okay? Completely through intuition, okay? No math here. So this means that I0 is negative. I0 is negative, so it's as if I0 is being pulled out in this manner, so the capacitor voltage must drop to begin life. Okay, and therefore, the dynamics look somewhat like this. Okay, and notice that this is very reminiscent of the ringing that we saw at the, at the output node of the, uh, at the input node of the second, uh, at the gate node of the second inverter. Okay. So let's stop here in terms of uh, time domain analysis of RLC. And um, today, let's take another big step forward. Okay, so today marks another transition in life here. Okay, this is actually a huge transition, so I want to, you know, just pause and, you know, like take 10 seconds of a breather uh, just to, uh, you know, uh, just to clearly demarcate the fact that we have a huge transition coming up. Okay? So uh, the key to this transition is that I want to look at today the steady-state response of networks to a sinusoidal drive. Okay, so we're going to do two things differently starting today in this new uh, journey of ours. So in the past, we looked at time domain behavior of circuits. So for RLC, for example, we said we looked at the transient response. I mean, what happened the instant I turned something on? It was a transient response. Today, we're going to look at a steady state response. Steady state response says that if I wait long enough, okay, for whatever the circuit wants to do in the beginning of life to die out, if I wait long enough, how is the circuit going to behave after a long time? I'll tell you why that's important in a second. So look at the steady state behavior. And second, I'm going to look today at sinusoidal drive. Okay, two things that are different from, um, say, for example, what I covered in the past 10 minutes. In the past 10 minutes, I covered two things which were different. One is that I looked at the transient response, and then steady state. 
And remember, for a DC input, for a DC voltage, the steady state was a DC voltage across the capacitor, correct? Okay, so the steady state was pretty boring. It was a steady state DC. But what we're going to do today is instead of having DC inputs or step inputs, uh, which would settle to a DC value after some time, we're going to drive a circuit through the sinusoidal input. Okay, so you may ask me, you know, uh, 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 Agarwal, are you nuts? Why do you want to drive something with a sinusoidal input? You know, why not just steps and DC and so on? Then that, that was painful enough. You know, why sinusoidal? Why not, you know, why not do triangular? Or why not do, uh, you know, some other exponentially decaying stuff or you know, something really cool like, you know, like a wacko music signal? You know, why, you know, what's special about sinusoidal stuff? Okay? And uh, the, the key thing to realize is that, let me ask you a question first. How many people here know about uh, Fourier series? Good. So it looks like some of you have taken the prerequisites. Good. <laughs> so, uh, so need I say more as to why this is important? Just that question should give you the answer, right? So it turns out that, so you learned about Fourier series, and when you learned about Fourier series, you were wondering, why on earth are we learning about Fourier series? Who cares that you can represent you know, um, the periodic signals as a summation of a series of uh, sine waves. And why is it interesting? Why are you telling me that I can take a square wave and represent that as a summation of uh, periodic square waves and represent that as a summation of sines? You know, who cares that I can take, you know, a sequence of pulses with a fixed period and represent that as a sum of sines? Who cares that I can take, you know, a triangular wave and represent that as a sum of sines? And, you, and, and I'm not sure what answer uh, your math professors gave you in the taught you Fourier series. But in math, you know, uh, they're purists. They don't care about applications. When the answer could well have been, you know, because it's aesthetically pleasing. It's not, I mean, isn't it cool that you can represent a sequence of pulses as, you know, some of signs? I mean, that's good enough for mathematicians. But, you know, I'm an engineer. You know, if it doesn't help humanity, if I cannot see how it helps humanity in the short term, then, uh, you know, uh, I probably don't care too much about it. Okay, so well, let me give you some practical significance of this. So it turns out that so, since we know that we can represent periodic signals with sums of signs, what this means is that if I can figure out the behavior of networks to a sinusoidal input, okay, if, if I can learn about, if I can understand how to analyze a network for a sinusoidal input, that means that if the circuit is linear, I can then compute the response of the circuit to any periodic waveform, correct? So here's the argument. I can represent any periodic waveform as a sum of signs. A Fourier series, remember. So if I just figure out how to measure the, or figure out the response of my network for, for a sine wave, then if, I, if this is a linear network, I can compute the response to any, sum of, any sequence of scaled sum of signs. Okay, if it's a linear network, you know, A some sine, B sine 2, omega, whatever, C sine, something or the other. I can simply take the response of the one sine, and from there, I can go ahead and knowing the response of, of, of a sine wave, I can compute the response to a sum of sines. Okay, that is pretty cool. Okay, so therefore, doing it for sinusoidal drives is really important. Well, why steady state now? Okay, hopefully I've convinced you that you know, looking at the response of circuits to sinusoidal drive is important and interesting because you can go to a, you know, you can go long, you know, long ways from there. What about steady state? Well, it turns out that, I'm going to show you, when you listen to music, uh, so you have an amplifier, listen to music. Okay, what you're observing by and large is the steady state behavior of the amplifier. Okay, look, you're listening to something over many seconds or many hours. Okay, and the transients used for most of our common circuits, the transients die out very quickly. Okay, and so the transients are quite complicated, and they die out quickly. So we say, we're engineers, let's focus on what's practically important. And we'll focus on the steady state behavior as a large part of our analysis. And just completely ignore the transient response uh, when we uh, care about the drive to sinusoidal, or uh, the response to sinusoidal input. Okay, the, the transient response is going to die away, and I'll show that uh, mathematically to you in a few seconds. And let's focus on the steady state because that's what, you know, that's what I'm going to hear most of the time. I'm going to listen to an average over a long period of time. Okay? So that's, that's the motivation behind this. 
And let me put this in perspective for you. And uh, so by now, this should bring memories to your mind. This is the playground that we are in. Okay, this is the lunch circuit playground here. I can remember we, we, we came from the playground of nature to the playground of EECS, where we make the big leap from Maxwell's equations to lump circuits. That's lump circuit abstraction. And within there, you spend a large part of uh, the last couple of months doing linear circuits. You also analyze nonlinear circuits. You know, remember the amplifier circuit with the MOSFET, large signal analysis, was nonlinear. Well, this is linear and nonlinear. Within linear, uh, we, also, we also showed that if you take a digital circuit, at least as we understood them, and draw the sub-circuit for a given set of switch settings. Okay, if I set the switches in a given way, what I was left with was another linear circuit for a given value of all the switch settings. My small signal analysis was also linear. If I focused on small signals, I also had linear analysis. So today what we're gonna do is this. We're gonna articulate a different part of the playground. Okay, this was a big linear playground. We've done this, we've done this. We're gonna explore this territory. This is that territory of the playground in which we have sinusoidal inputs to, uh, to, to circuits. Furthermore, we're gonna look at a sub-circuit of that region, which is steady state. We look at sinusoidal input and in the steady state, okay? So that's gonna be our focus for the next, uh, for the next uh, two or three lectures. Okay, just to give you perspective of where we are. Okay, so to motivate this, what I'd like to do is consider your amplifier. This is our, our friend, the amplifier circuit, uh, this part here. And remember, the, uh, even though this is an amplifier, I'm using a MOSFET here. And the MOSFET, as you know, has this gate capacitance CGS. I'm explicitly drawing it out for you here. And I'm gonna drive this with a bias voltage plus some small signal VI. The usual template for uh, amplifiers. And uh, there is some Thevenin resistance attached to uh, that source. So uh, I'm gonna model my source as a bias voltage, a small signal, plus some source resistance, okay? And I'm gonna apply a sine wave here, and I'm gonna look at what this looks like. Okay? So you may think that, look, this is a linear amplifier, and so if I apply a sine wave here, I should see some response here, and that should be, it should be the same, the same amplitude if I feed the same amplitude here over any frequency. Okay, but let's see what happens. Uh, keep, keep a look at, uh, switch over to that view graph while I show you a little demonstration here. Okay, so, uh, so what you see here is three sine waves. Uh, a yellow sine wave, which is the input here. You see a green sine wave, which is the input VC at the gate of the MOSFET. And then you see the blue, which is the output here. So for now, simply focus on the yellow and the blue. Okay, the, the yellow is the input and the blue is the output. Okay, so I apply some input and I get a output that looks more or less uh, some linear uh, function of uh, this input here. It's a small signal. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna change the frequency of the input. Remember, I want to look at the response of the circuit to a sinusoid. Okay, so I'm feeding a sinusoid here. Look at the response. I'm gonna change the frequency. That's a big shift that we're making in that the curves that we drew in the last lecture had to do with varying time. Now I'm gonna focus on sinusoids and vary their frequency. Okay, so I'm gonna change the frequency and stare at the blue curve as I increase the frequency and uh, just think about what you might expect. Okay, based on the knowledge you have so far, you would expect that, look, as I change the frequency, this should the frequency should change, but I should see the same amplitude. Okay, but take a look. Let me increase the frequency of the input, and, and, and what do you see at the uh, output? So I'm increasing the frequency. What do you see happening there? If you don't see anything changing there, you'll need to see an optometrist, but uh, okay. So, so, so what do we see here? So as I change the frequency, as I increase the frequency, what happened to the blue? 
the blue kept decreasing in amplitude. And you're saying, whoa, what, you know, what, what's happening here? We don't have the tools to deal with this. Okay, I expected that I, I changed my frequency. <coughs> my frequency here uh, should change, of course, but the, why is the amplitude changing? What's happening here? That is weird. Okay? And notice that this amplitude became smaller because the amplitude of the green became smaller. And remember, the green was the, the voltage across the capacitor. Okay, so this is your RC, and here's my input. My input has the amplitude, which I'm holding more or less constant. And notice that VC has decreased in value as I increase my frequency. Okay, just hold that thought. So as I increase the frequency of my input, the amplitude of the output kept diminishing. In other words, the gain of the system seemed to have decreased as I increased my frequency. Okay, and today we'll look at uh, why that is so and how we can analyze that. Okay, the other thing that uh, is not so obvious uh, is not so obvious here is there is a phase shift. So what I'm going to do is try to see if we can observe the phase shift here. Notice here, what we have been used to is for the amplifier, we get a complete inversion at the output. Okay, inversion means a phase difference of 180 degrees for a sine wave, right? So this peak should have been here. But notice that there's a shifting of the peak. So in other words, if, I, if the yellow was my input, my output should have uh, had its minimum when the input had its maximum. Okay, but notice there's a shifting of uh, the signal such that the output is a maximum, not quite at the point where the input is a minimum, but a little bit after that. Also weird. So not only has uh, this little circuit here uh, lost its gain somehow, but also it seems to have shifted the signal in phase. Okay, that is weird. Okay, and today we will look at why that is so and try to understand the frequency behavior of, uh, of this little subcomponent here. Notice that uh, uh, VC, uh, is, VC is exactly 180 out of phase with VO. Okay, so VO is faithfully an inverted form of, uh, uh, inverted amplified form of the input VC. Okay, however, VC itself should have been the same as VI, but it looks quite different. Okay, so let's understand why that is so. So the sub-circuit to model is the sub-circuit comprising the source resistor and the capacitor, and I'm just showing that to you here. I have a VI, a resistor and capacitor. Okay, I'm going to understand how this behaves. And uh, it's a first-order uh, circuit, a single capacitor. My input is a VI cosine of omega t. VI is a real number for t greater than zero. <clears throat> and I'm telling you that the capacitor voltage starts out being zero. Okay, and my VI is a sinusoid. It's not a step this time, it's a sinusoid. So VI is a sinusoid, and I want to figure out what VC looks like. The behavior here tells me, I'll give you the answer, the behavior here tells me that when I feed a sinusoidal input, as the frequency increases, VC should be decreasing somehow and also be shifting in phase. Okay, let's do uh, the derivation for that and see what happens. Okay, so uh, <clears throat> to give you some insight as to how to, uh, how to go about analyzing this, let me draw a little graph as to uh, the effort level of doing this. So to determine VC of T, on the y-axis here is, is, is our effort. Okay, how hard do we have to work to solve this circuit for a sinusoidal input? Okay, and, and uh, on this graph, down here is easy, and up here is, you know, pure agony, sheer agony up here. Okay, so it's a effort, a scale of effort level ranging from easy to complete agony. And this is the time axis. And the time axis has, you know, starts out at 11 o'clock, the early part of today's lecture, and ends at roughly 12, that's today's lecture, and this is next lecture. Okay, so what I'm going to show you today is a method that uses a usual differential equation approach. Okay, and this is going to be pure agony. Okay, if you thought last Thursday was agony, 
<laughs> watch today. Okay, this is going to be sheer, sheer, sheer hell. Okay, so I'm, so I'm going to grunge through that. And I think I'll sort of give up halfway because, you know, it's, it's, it's just too painful even for me here. <clears throat> then what I'm going to do is at the end of this lecture, I'm going to show you an approach that I, uh, you know, give a, give a cutesy name. I call it the sneaky approach. Okay, if you're going to sneak something in there, that's going to be a lot easier. Okay, and then in the next lecture, I'm going to show you an even sneakier approach that's going to just be absolute bliss. Okay, so let's start here. All right. So, uh, so indulge me as I go through the, you know, or the, uh, the agony part. Okay, I'm going to blast through it because uh, that's not how we're going to do things. You, but you just need to know that that's agony. All right, so uh, let's do a usual differential equation approach, okay? Steps one, two, three, four. Set up differential equation, find the particular solution, find the homogeneous solution, add up the two, solve for the unknowns. Okay, it's a mantra, the four-step mantra, all right? Okay, so let's do it. Step one, write the DE. That's easy. Uh, we've done this before <coughs> for the RC circuit. It's RC DVC DT plus VC equals VI. This is no different from what you got for your RC circuit with a step input. Just that my input is VI cosine of omega T in this case. It's not just a, a DC voltage VI. Stay at that. Enjoy it while the, uh, uh, while the going is easy. Okay? Just, you know, uh, it's like, you know, uh, traversing rapids, and before you come to a class five, you kind of, uh, you have a calm in the raging waters there. You kind of sit there saying, oh, you know, uh, this, the scenery around here looks really good and so on. All you're doing is, you know, stalling before you have to dive down to class five. So we'll, we'll get to class five rapids in a few seconds here. So just enjoy this. Okay, RC, DVC, DT plus VC equals VI. Okay, you've seen this before, nothing fancy, good old stuff, VI cosine of omega D. You want to hold on to your seat belts? Okay. <clears throat> okay, so let's find a particular solution to uh, the cosine input. Okay, so let's, let's use our standard method. And what I'll do is just so there's going to be so much crapola up there that so that we, I draw your attention to VP, which is what we're trying to get, I'm just going to put a boxer on VP in red. Okay, if you see like all sorts of garbage up here, just, just look for the red square. Okay, that's what, that's, that's what we're trying to get at. Okay? That's our equation. <clears throat> okay, so let's try. First try. Gee, A worked before. A constant value A worked before for, for DC inputs. Let's try that again. If it worked then, it may work now. So if I use A, a constant value, and I, and I substitute it here, I get uh, DA DT goes to zero. VP is A, but on the right-hand side, I have VI cosine omega D. Okay, so clearly A doesn't work. Sorry, I struck out. Well, aha, cosine omega t here. Let's try a cosine omega t as my particular solution. Okay, things are getting a little harder now, a little more painful. So substitute a cosine omega t here. So I do get a cosine omega t for VP, but out here I get RC a sine omega t times omega times minus one. So I have a sine and a cosine, and then I have a cosine on the right-hand side. Sorry, doesn't work. Nope, doesn't work either. Well, let's try a cosine omega t plus phi. Okay, so uh, we're now embarking into the rapids here. Okay, you can begin. You, you can begin feeling the pressure. So, uh, but the, you know, just to refresh your memories of sines and cosines, a is the amplitude of the cosine, omega is the frequency, and phi is the shape. Uh, the phase. Remember uh, the, the signal I showed you earlier. You know, uh, something happened to the amplitude of the sine, something happened to the phase. So A cosine omega t plus phi. Okay, let me, let me plug it in here and, you know, and go by standard practice. So here's what I get. So I plug in A cosine omega t into this equation, and this is what I get. Okay, I differentiate it, so I get omega out minus sine, sine omega t plus, t plus phi. A cosine omega t plus phi equals VA cosine omega. That might work. That might work. So let's, so let's yeah, let's, you know, now we get, get, the, get into the, the class six part of the class five. You know, the, all class fives are a little bit of class six, a rapid. So uh, remember, and, and the rapids go, you know, uh, uh, on an exponential scale. So it's like earthquakes. So what I do now is that I, I expand out sine omega t plus phi. 
sine omega t plus phi, sine omega t plus cos phi minus, you know, blah, 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 it goes on and on. I, I could go on and on, but, uh, you know, uh, this is even tiring me here. So uh, this is, this can be made to work. Okay, but I'm not sure I want to put all of us through this uh, trig nightmare here. Okay, if I'm really, really nasty, I can give this to you as a homework assignment or something. Okay, but I'm not that nasty, so, uh, so you, won't, uh, you won't see that. Okay, but, uh, but this, if I go down this path, it'll get me to the answer, but I would have to soon negotiate class six, class seven rapids to, uh, to get to where I want, so uh, let, me, let me punt on it. Okay, let me, let, let me start from scratch. Okay, so I'm at step two, let me start from scratch. Okay, instead what I'd like to do is let's get sneaky here. So rather than negotiating the class five rapids, what we can say is, aha, we can take our canoes and jump onto shore and run down and then get back onto the river. Let's do that. That's called the sneaky approach so that, you know, all our friends who are behind us think to negotiate the rapids, but what we're going to do is get sneaky, take the shore path. So let's get sneaky here and take, and just walk down the shore and see what's there, okay? So um, I'm going to do something completely weirdo here. I want to look at solving this equation through the shore method, okay? S stands for shore or S stands for sneaky, whatever you want, okay? So what I'm going to do is rather than try to solve for vi cosine omega t, I'm going to say let's try a different input altogether, okay? And you'll understand why in a second. It's like I'm the captain of my canoe, and I tell my uh, teammates, hey, you know, let's not negotiate the rapids. Let's go and explore the shore. Maybe down the shore we can find a path that gets us across to the other side more easily. Okay, so here's me and my colleagues, you know, carrying our canoe and getting onto shore and taking a sneaky path. So uh, this is not what I set out to solve, okay, but I'm taking, uh, I don't know where this will lead me, but let's see where the, where the shore path leads us. Okay, so I'm going to use, uh, try solving this equation, VI e to the ST. Okay, S stands for shore or sneaky, whatever you want, right? So I don't know where I'm going, but let's see where this leads us. Let, let's explore, okay? Make, make believe you're Columbus or something. <clears throat> okay. So I don't know. You know, let's let's uh, let's use the usual techniques and see if how, see how this works out. So let's try a solution, a particular solution, VP e to the st. So my input is VI e to the st. I'm trying uh, to solve the circuit for a different input. And let me try a solution VP e to the st, and see if that works out nicely. So uh, I substitute VP e to the st into my equation here. So RC VP e to the st blah 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 blah. Okay, so what I get here is VIST, VPST stays the same, but here VP comes out, S comes out, and E to the ST uh, stays the same. So that's a nice property of exponentials, and this is what I get. A really cool property of exponentials is that when I differentiate it, I get the exponential back. Unlike a cosine, I got a sine, and for a sine, I got a cosine. Exponentials are, you know, very plain and simple, are straightforward. Okay, what you see is what you get. You differentiate it, you get the same thing. You get some other, you know, uh, some scaling, VP and S and so on, some scaling here. Uh, you get an S scaling here, but the basic form stays the same. This is quite nice. Okay, so I've e to the ST in all three places, so I can, uh, I can uh, cancel those out, and I get this expression, and I get this. Wow, so if I go down the shore, I get someplace fast. I don't know where I am yet, but, but whatever I did, it was easy. Okay, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just exploring this path, down the shore path, I'm making progress. I don't know where I've gotten yet. We'll see where we got to in a second, but I got someplace, quickly, fast. Okay, I was able to solve for this input, vi e to the st, and get the get this solution very quickly. So what happened here? So I assumed the solution of the form VP e to the ST, substituted it back, and found that VP, if VP were equal to VI 1 plus SRC, then VP e to the ST is a solution. So what I've done here is that VI divided by 1 plus SRC is a solution, a particular solution to this e equation for the input VI e to the ST. Okay, I, I put a box around it because this is important. This was easy. So we went on to shore and said, let's try this other input, 
and we made rapid progress on shore. And I got someplace. I don't know where I am yet. I got this. Okay, let me pause here and let me, let me uh, give you the final answer. I'm going to show you over the next five minutes that this is our answer. You're staring at the answer already. Okay, so I and my party have taken the shore path and we've gotten someplace and we see the river there. Okay, turns out we're exactly where we want to be just after the rapids. So all I have to do now is get my colleagues into the river with myself in the canoe and we're done. Okay, you don't know that yet. So uh, my colleagues and I are sitting on the shore looking at the river. So we've got some place. There's no rapids there. We've got some place. We don't quite know is this just after the rapids or not. We don't know yet. Okay, but I got there very quickly. And I'll tell you right now that that is the place we wanted to go to. And the next five view graphs I'm going to blast through, there's going to be more pain and agony to show you why that is the case. Okay, it's me thinking I'm Columbus and proving to my colleagues that this is where we want to be. Okay, and pulling out my sextant and, you know, all my, you know, the compasses and so on that uh, cartographers and, you know, uh, uh, people use and to prove to my colleagues that this is where I want to be. Okay, this is the, this is the answer. Okay, next five view graphs will be demonstrating that this is indeed the answer or close enough to the answer that uh, we'll be satisfied. Okay, so the, isn't this spectacular? I'm going to show you in about five minutes that this gives us all the information we need to know to compute the sinusoidal steady state response to this differential equation. Okay, and we will come, oh, let, me, let me write that down here, just so you know. Just so you remember, I'm gonna put a marker on the shore that says, this is where we are right now. Okay, now let me prove to you. Okay, so uh, as I just said, uh, VPS is VI, it's this stuff here, multiplied by E to the ST is a solution for VI E to the ST, okay? So this guy here is a solution for VI E to the ST, and VP is simply the coefficient that multiplies E to the ST. Similarly, if I substitute uh, S equals J omega, Okay, I told you five view graphs of more, uh, more hell, but we're going to get, I'm just going to prove to you that this is it. So I'm substituting S equals J omega. Okay, now this is Columbus giving a big speech at the end, convincing his colleagues that if we are where we want to be. Okay, so uh, S equals J omega. So I substitute J omega for S, and this is what I get. Okay, so uh, this is a solution for E to the ST. And so this is the solution for e to the j omega t, okay? And uh, let me mark this for you as uh, something to remember, okay? Vi divided by one plus j omega rc. So in terms of that, okay, I'm substituting j omega for s, and uh, this is a complex number. It's a complex amplitude. It's a complex number because of j here, and it multiplies e to the j omega t. Just, just uh, keep this in mind. Okay, so that was easy. Okay, the steps were easy. I'm still proving to you that uh, this is where we want to be. Okay, so uh, now let me draw the connection back to VP. And the first fact was that finding the response to VI e to the J omega T was easy. We know that. Second was that <coughs> is the following observation, that VI cosine omega T Okay, simply the real part of this number here. So VI cosine omega t is simply the real part of VI e to the j omega t. Okay, from the Euler relation. So cosine omega t is simply the real part of this guy. Okay, so a light bulb's beginning to go off. So the first fact was that finding the response to VI e to the j omega t was easy, and the response was this, right, times e to the j omega t. That was easy, all right? And the second part is that the real part of this is vi cosine omega t was our input. So to draw the connection between two steps, finding the response to vi e to the j omega t was easy. The real part of that was the input we cared about. 
Yeah, light bulbs going off. So uh, let me draw you a little, uh, little uh, uh, you know, picture here to show you what's happening. So response to VI is VP. It's a particular response we're looking for. Remember the red square. But we threw in a sneaky input, VIS, and we found the response VPS to that. Okay, th this step was easy. This step was hard. VI to VP was hard. Trick nightmare, remember? But VIS to VPS was easy. It was a simple, you know, VP e to the J omega T, uh, VP e to the ST thing. And we also know that the real part of VIS is VI. The real part of this is simply VI. So if we have a real circuit, if we have a, if we have a linear, real linear circuit, okay, for a, for a linear circuit, if the real part of this gives me VI, then the real part of the solution should give me VP. So computing VPS was easy. So if I take the real part of this, I take the corresponding real part of this. Okay? So this is sort of an inverse superposition argument. For superposition, I said, take the response for A, take the response for B, add them up, you get the response for A plus B. Here what we're saying is that get the response to A plus B, all right, or to A plus JB, and the real part of the input will produce a response given by the real part of the output. Okay? So this is an inverse superposition argument. So it's a linear circuit, then if VI is a real part of this sneaky input, then I find the response to the sneaky input and take its real part, I should get VP. So here I am, Columbus, standing down at the entrance to the, uh, this part of the river. I just proved to my colleagues that all we have to do is take the real part of what we have. Okay, we can just jump right back into the river and uh, get back to VP. Okay, and what I'm going to do next is uh, just grind through the math and show you that. I'll just blast through it. It's not important, uh, but uh, you, you have it in your notes. So, uh, so I'm telling you that VP is simply the real part of the sneaky output, and uh, I take the real part of VP e to the J omega t, and I take the real part, and uh, let me just, uh, just a bunch of math here. Okay, so uh, I'm just taking the real part and doing a bunch of uh, complex math. So remember, v VP was given by this quantity here, and I take the real part, and I end up with uh, VP is simply this quantity multiplied by cosine omega t plus phi, where phi is given by tan inverse of omega RC, and uh, this is the coefficient multiplying, co multiplying the cosine. Okay, so by taking the sneaky path and then taking the real part of that, output answer, I was able to very quickly get to where I wanted to be. Okay, so from here to here, it's only math. <clears throat> and recall that VP, the thing in the red, was what we set out to find out, which is a particular response to VI cosine of omega t. Okay, and remember that two grunge is all of this stuff. So I'm going to blast through two or three more view graphs that uh, just, just give you more insight and more math, uh, nothing particular. Um, and remember, to solve the equation, we have to find a homogeneous solution too. But uh, recall that the homogeneous solution for our RC circuit is of the form A e to the minus T by RC. Okay? This means that as time becomes very large, this part goes to zero. <clears throat> right? As time becomes large in the steady state, remember I care about the steady state. This goes to zero. And so I don't care about the homogeneous solution. Isn't that fantastic? For most of the circuits we will deal with, except for purely oscillatory ones, the homogeneous part dies away. You, you have something like e to the minus t, whatever. It just dies away. It's gone. Okay? So the total solution has VH going away. And uh, what I end up with is just VP. So my total solution in the steady state is simply VP. And A is given by this that we just calculated. Okay? So uh, I just have a bunch more insight that I uh, talk about. We can look through in your notes. And uh, I just want to show you a very quick uh, summary. So in summary, what we have is uh, we computed VP. It was a complex coefficient. And all these steps, two grunge, three, and four, were a waste of time. And uh, what I showed you was that for the input VI, the coefficient uh, VP was complex. And I can take the ratio and represent it in this manner as well. Okay? And uh, from VP, I can then compute 
the uh, multiplier for the cosine as, uh, as follows. I divide by VP here. Uh, remember, the cosine was multiplied by, in the, in the mathematical step that I did, VI divided by 1 plus this stuff here. So I can get the magnitude and phase of the transfer function of the circuit in the, in the following manner. Uh, and to wrap up very quickly, uh, let me, uh, I'm going to cover this again the next time and show you a magnitude plot. And notice here that if I plot VP divided by VI, remember, this was, uh, this was VP here. That's the answer, okay? Uh, the magnitude looks like this on a log scale, VP over VI. For small frequencies, omega, it's, it's at one. But as omega increases, VP over VI keeps decreasing. Okay, that is the output. <coughs> uh, remember, mod VP was the amplitude of the output. That keeps decreasing. And this is the reason why, as I increase the frequency, the amplitude of my output cosine kept decreasing. I can also plot the phase for you. And the phase, in the same manner, as omega increased, my phase also kept shifting from zero initially to uh, pi by two finally. Okay? Um, but let me stop here and start with this the next time and, uh, and revisit this. Uh, unfortunately, I won't have time for, for the demo. I'll show it to you next time.